What is God's loving kindness and steadfast love that keeps us stable uh, and constant in all our ways and prepares us as well to hear God's word this morning? Just a little bit of an intro before we read the text from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 to 5 2, which you can find, turn to that and find that for you consideration this morning as we'll read that here shortly. So Ephesians chapter 4, 25 to 5, 2. Last week we considered how our new identity in Christ comes with a new set of clothes that we must live in. Not literal clothes, but rather the Holy Spirit has remade us and called us to put on new habits, new virtues, a new identity in Christ, in truth, in righteousness, and holiness. And so as we approach this passage today, the Apostle Paul is far from done of telling us how we ought to live and how we ought to embrace this new reality. He's going to focus on how here we ought to relate to one another in Christ as a holy society, as the redeemed people of the Lord. And so let's hear now the reading of God's word from Ephesians 4, 25 to 5, 2. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. We are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the Holy Spirit add his blessing to it as we consider it now. Well, about 13 years ago, I had the privilege of Uh, starting a study abroad program where I traveled to Mexico City uh, in the district there at the center of the heart of Mexico for six months I was there and I knew as going into the heart of Mexican culture I was a blonde surfer boy from California and I was going to stand out stick out like a sore thumb Right? And so I wanted to fit in as much as possible and so I even tried before I left to dye my hair dark brown. I had my wife and mother-in-law dye my hair dark brown, but it didn't work out. It actually came out like a dark red. It looked terrible, Uh, but I was still committed, committed to as much as possible, shedding my old American self and trying to get immersed in the culture that I was entering. I even used that experience to try and be kind of different in my personality, tried to be a bit more outgoing than I am naturally here in the states 
And in some ways it worked. Over those months, I did kind of embrace a new kind of version of myself, a different version of me. Now, some of you, maybe you've experienced something similar. If you've made a big move from one country to another or from one state to another state that has a very different culture, well, if not, if you haven't had that experience, you can at least imagine what it would be like. Now, what if I told you that this is actually true of every Christian on a deeply spiritual level? You know, that's what Paul is assuming here in this passage. And in a couple subtle but clear ways, the Apostle Paul is linking the Christian experience today with the experience of the Jewish exiles that were returning from their captivity, returning to the promised land. And like the Israelites who were exiled from their home in God's promised land and taken into captivity by Babylon, we too, in Adam, all of humanity have been exiled from our home with God, exiled from the garden of paradise where God was there with us. And we've been taken captive by sin, the devil, and death. And now God, in Christ, has promised to bring us back to him. Like he brought back the Israelites from their captivity and restored them in the promised land. Now God, by his grace, is redeeming us from captivity to sin through Christ and restoring us by his spirit and leading us ultimately to the new promised land, the true promised land, the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. And Paul is saying that all of these realities should change the way that we react to one another, interact with one another, relate to one another as the redeemed people of the Lord, as those who are traveling to a new destination together to embrace this new identity together. And this week we're seeing how we are to relate to one another, and next week we'll consider the ethic, the, the conduct of living that we are to have in relation to the world in which we live as we're making our way, journeying through this wilderness to that promised land. There's a specific ethic, conduct of living, a code of conduct that is fitting to who we are now in Christ and where we are headed together. And you might be asking after this introduction, where do we see this in the text? Where is this in the passage that we just read? And that's the right question to ask. You should be asking those questions each week. You should be asking, where is he getting this from the text? So let me show you. And this will be our first point. The church as exile community. And we see this first in verse 25, where Paul says, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Now, this is actually a quote from the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah chapter 8. And in chapter 8, verse 16 of Zechariah, we read, These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other, and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other, and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. And you can see the same themes, right, in Zechariah and what we've already read in Ephesians 4.25, the theme to put off falsehood and instead speak the truth to your neighbor. Now, what was the context for Zechariah chapter 8? Well, that whole chapter 
is about God's beautiful plan for Israel to bring back the Jewish exiles that had been taken in captivity and take them back to the promised land where he would dwell with them and he would restore them as a community. For example, just a bit earlier in chapter 8 of Zechariah, 7 through 8, it says this, This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. So now the question, why is Paul quoting from this passage, from this Old Testament prophet? It is to show that this Old Testament prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and through his church. He's showing us that the church is the new people of God gathered from among the nations, gathered by him and destined to live with God in the true promised land of the new creation where he will be their God and we will be his people. And so we see that evidence here from the quoting of Zechariah, but there's more. If you're still unconvinced, we can look now at verse 30 of our passage in Ephesians 4, verse 30, where Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And here, Paul is again quoting from another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, who spoke to Israel in her exile. And throughout the book of Isaiah, the prophet is pointing back to the old days when God redeemed Israel from Egypt and brought them through the wilderness to the promised land. That exodus from Egypt and and ushering them in to the homeland of Canaan. And the exodus event, how God took them out of Egypt, out of oppression there, became a kind of paradigm for them interpreting and understanding their experience in exile. So later, as the Israelites were taken captive and brought into ex- as exiles away from their homeland, they were awaiting another new exodus when God would release them from that oppression and restore them again to his place of dwelling in Jerusalem, to their promised land. And so in, in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7 and 10, we read about the exodus event and Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, which is where we find the quote from our passage in Ephesians. So chapter 63 of Isaiah 7 and 10, where he says, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. And in all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And all that is speaking about how he, he became their savior and, and took them up and carried them through the wilderness. And then it says, and yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And that's the quote that Paul has in Ephesians 4. And so you see, with these two quotes from Zechariah and then from Isaiah, that Paul is saying that the church is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to gather his people from the nations and bring them back to the true promised land, to gather his people and usher them in to the new creation. 
And because this is true, Paul is indicating here and implying here, because this is this reality that applies to us now through Christ, we must not fall into the same error of Israel in the wilderness, in the rebellion against God when they grieved the Holy Spirit. And so, to further confirm this, Dr. Ba, in his commentary on this passage in Ephesians, says this, The idea of a new exodus from sin and death is the hallmark of Christianity. There is a new exodus ahead for those who possess the first fruits of the Spirit, and it will lead to the redemption of our bodies and resurrection glory. As Israel had been led as pilgrims in the wilderness by the angel of God's presence, so also the new covenant church is filled with the divine presence as pilgrims, leading to the heavenly promise that the patriarchs saw from a distance and hailed. And so we see with this evidence before us that subtly but clearly the Apostle Paul wants us to see the church community as God's exiled people returning now to their ultimate promised land. We're headed in the same direction that new creation, and this should change the way we interact and relate with one another. It should inspire us to pick up this new code of conduct, this new ethic, uh, this new way of living following Christ. And now we'll examine that, and the first thing we see that Paul lays out for us here is this, that we are to uphold the truth that unites us. Uphold the truth that unites us. We see this in verses 25 and 27, where Paul shows us that we must not let falsehood define us any longer or divide us. In the very beginning of the Bible, in the very opening pages, we read about how the serpent entered the scene with lies, false assertions about God, about creation, and about humanity. Jesus himself called the devil a liar and the father of lies. And when Adam and Eve bit into that first lie of the serpent, they were infected with the toxic contaminant of falsehood, of lies. And so it runs rampant through all of us. The, the, the true spiritual pandemic of falsehood is throughout all of humanity. And we know this well today in the information age. We know how hard it is to trust people. How hard it is to trust what we hear on the news, on the radio, or read in books, because there are so many different conflicting assertions about what is true. And despite the popular belief of our current day that all truths are true, your truth is true, my truth is true, we know deep down that there is only one absolute truth. We know it. And so a lot of stuff is, in fact, fake news which comes from both the right and the left politically. Whether it looks like facts that have been skewed and twisted, presented in a certain way, or, on the other hand, facts that are ignored or airbrushed over, we're all swimming in a sea of falsehood, and it's hard to trust. And what does this produce in society? What have we witnessed over the past few years, even? Well, all kinds of toxic bitterness, empty suspicions about one another, anger, hatred, division, and an unwillingness to talk with others who might see things different than us. Lies are toxic. And Paul is saying, Christians, you have been liberated from this world of lies 
And like Israel was liberated from the oppression in Egypt and from Pharaoh's oppressive hand, you've been liberated from the father of lies. Therefore, in the church, in our life together as members of the same body, we must resist that falsehood, lest it destroy us and divide us as well. You think about how, even with our food, as we're more conscious about how food is made and what's going into our bodies, uh, even with food, we avoid that, a lot of us avoid toxic synthetic foods more and more. Or maybe we avoid toxic fake news that we consider as false. And we avoid those things because we believe that they will do us harm. We don't let them in. So why are we not as vigilant about the toxic bitterness and cynicism that contaminates our hearts and eats away at that new principle of life that the Holy Spirit has given us in Christ, that eats away at the unity that we have in Him? Why are we not as vigilant to oppose and resist those things? We must put away falsehood. We must stop the negative assumptions about others and avoid empty suspicion about others. If we don't, that negativity will snowball, getting bigger and bigger and more powerful in our hearts, leading us to disregard and disdain others. Isn't this what happened to Israel in the wilderness after they were redeemed from Egypt? In Exodus 15, we read about how the people came to the place called Marah, which literally in Hebrew means bitterness. It was called that for two reasons. Because the water that they found there was too bitter for them to drink. But also, when they came to that place and did not find water to drink, their bitterness came out of their hearts as well. And they grumbled and complained against Moses. And they began to divide and turn against each other. And it's no coincidence in our passage that in verse 31, the first sinful habit of the heart that Paul mentions is bitterness. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. You see, these are toxic thoughts, words, and actions that tore the people of Israel apart in the wilderness. They turned against each other on many occasions. And as we saw earlier, they grieved the Holy Spirit who journeyed with them. And so Paul here, he's telling us that we must deal with that anger in our hearts promptly. We must not allow it to sit and fester inside of us. He quotes from Psalm 4 saying, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And in that psalm, David himself was facing in his life false accusations. Others were hounding him with lies, trying to kill him. And it was upsetting David, yes, but he also shows that he did not let it turn into a deep-seated kind of anger or resentment towards others in his heart. Why? Because according to Paul here in verse 27, that leaves the door open for the devil to take advantage of us. He says, do not give the devil a foothold. As we read in other passages, the devil is considered or called like this hungry lion who's roaming about looking for easy prey. And how do lions hunt? They hunt as a pride together, pursuing their prey, like a pack of antelopes, for example. And instinctively, the lions, they look for the weakest member of the pack. 
They look for especially one who is wounded, maybe has a limp. They target that animal, and then they smell the blood, they smell the wound, and they go after it as easy prey. Well, Paul is saying that the devil is looking in the church for Christians wounded by bitter anger towards one another in the faith. And the devil sees that Christian who's limping around and always complaining to other brothers and sisters in the faith, always complaining on social media, etc. And he smells the festering wound of bitterness and hatred in the heart of the Christian. And the devil and his legions, I imagine, they laugh and say, ha, here is an easy prey for us. And they get a foothold. They seize the opportunity and they attack. Why? To divide the church. To split us up. And sadly, this happens a lot in churches. Instead of our Christian mouths being wellsprings of wholesome talk that give life to others around us, many are springs of toxic bitterness, like the place of Morah, the waters that came from there. In verse 29, Paul says this about our mouths. Do not let any wholesome talk, unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That it may benefit those who listen. Originally in the Greek, here it says literally that it may give grace to those who hear. Give grace. This is saying that Paul is saying we have the opportunity in our life together to actually give each other the grace of God by speaking the words of truth to each other, which is powerful to renew, restore, to heal, to build each other up instead of tear each other down with our words of bitterness. And when we don't do this, when our speech is not wholesome, when we let out that toxic bitterness, it divides us. And Paul says, in that way, we grieve the Holy Spirit with whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? What does it mean? Well, do you know what it means to grieve your own mother? Maybe you've grieved your own mother by something you did or said. Did you ever do something that disappointed your father? Do you know what it means to grieve your wife doing something that wounded her heart deeply do you know what it means perhaps to disappoint your mentor in school or in athletics well let me suggest that by those experiences you know in part in part what it means to grieve the holy spirit because everything we know and learn about god is by way of analogy by way of comparison and so it's as if the holy spirit is saying you know how you have grieved them in that way so too have you grieved me. You have grieved the person of the Holy Spirit. And why are those memories of grieving loved ones so sharp and painful? It's because those failures adversely affected people that are dear to us, people that loved us, that cared for us. And those failures in the Christian life also adversely affect the Holy Spirit who is most dear to us because he loves us more than anyone else in the whole world. And so when you sin, when you grieve the person of the Holy Spirit, when you disappoint the one who is most committed and loyal to you, we are rejecting in that moment, in that time, the very God who is love, who has given us his spirit. You see, loved ones, Paul is saying we must resist the lies 
of the enemy, the lies that want to come into our hearts, especially the lie that, our, that other Christians are our enemies. We must resist that lie. We must guard our hearts and our tongues. Instead, we must band together, stand together, and die together for Christ if it comes to that. Especially as the influence of the world increases and lies run rampant around us, we must more than ever come together and uphold the truth that unites us and not let lies divide us. So that's the first main ethic here that we see throughout this passage. Uh, Secondly here, we also must work to uphold one another. Uphold one another. Work to uphold one another. Look at verse 28 where he addresses a related problem of theft and robbery. And we can generalize this as taking from others in order to gain for ourselves personally. Paul says that in light of what God has done for us in Christ, we must be a different kind of community. And in part, we must not be a community which is every man for himself. No. We are called to find worthy labor in this world, work excellently, faithfully in it, and use those earnings not just for our own self, but to help one another according to the needs of each other. The goal of working is not just to have something for me to indulge in personally, but in order to have something extra so that I can share with my brother and sister in their need. And like we mentioned with our words, We need to have each other's backs with our works as well, with our labor. And ideally, a church should be strong and stable and united where everyone is speaking the truth in love and lifting each other up out of poverty, where there is no one found among us who is in need because we are there having each other's back and supporting one another with generosity and compassion. And again, as our culture becomes more and more hostile to Christianity and to Christians, We must work to uphold one another. I'm convinced that more and more in the future, we will be more and more dependent, literally dependent upon one another in these ways. And so let us continue to work to uphold one another. And lastly, let's consider how we must let our faith work towards love. In verses 32 through 5, chapter 5, verse 2, Paul calls us to imitate our Father in heaven. We've been restored and remade in the image of God. And the more and more, as we're journeying towards God's homeland, that new creation, the more we should reflect the nature of God. As God is kind and compassionate towards us, so should we be kind and compassionate towards one another. As God has forgiven us in Christ, so we should forgive one another. And ultimately, as God's beloved children, he says we are to walk in love because God is love. The end goal of our ethic, our conduct of living, is love because he is love. As we know, of all the commandments can be distilled. All of God's commandments can be distilled in the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as Paul points out here, God is calling us to imitate him in his love, in the life death and resurrection of Jesus demonstrates in full living color the reality of God's love for us. And let's meditate here at the end about how throughout Jesus' life he faced false accusations. Falsehood surrounded Jesus. Bitter words of slander. 
people calling him as one who was filled with a demon. And pure hatred surrounded him until his death. But he didn't let any of it dissuade him from loving us to the very end. When Jesus saw up close and personal our ugly sin, he didn't say, nope. I can't handle this. This isn't for me. I'm out of here. I'm going to find some other people that are worthy of my love. The grass is greener somewhere else. No, that's not how Jesus responded to our sin. No. In fact, as he confronted our sin and saw it up close and personal, he doubled down and he loved us and laid down his life. He sacrificed his life and shed his blood to cover for all our sins, to detox our bitter hearts from that bitterness that dwells within, and to make peace for us with God. So, loved ones, this is what Jesus did for you in love. Now, this is what he asks you to do for your brother and sister in love, to imitate and reflect him. And why? Remember where we are headed together we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, sealed for the day of resurrection by the Holy Spirit. And we are exiles headed towards that true promised land, the new creation. And our homeland is a place of love. In the second century, the church father Ignatius wrote a letter to this church, the church in Ephesus, saying this, The beginning is faith. Its end is love. You see, now we have faith, but one day it will convert and turn into full love, and the new creation will be a world of love where God is dwelling in our midst. This is where our faith in Christ is leading us, and so like people getting ready to enter into a new country, getting ready to do whatever it takes to embrace that new reality, that new culture, we must shed our old selves and embrace that new version that Christ has made of us by his spirit, that new self that fits with who God is. God is love and fits with the homeland that awaits us, that world of love. And so, as Paul says in Colossians, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. May it be so for us. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this glorious reality about what you have done for us in Christ, that you have taken us out of captivity. And those who've been exiled into this wilderness of sin and death and destruction and falsehood, you have called us out of that. And by your Spirit, with whom you have sealed us for the day of redemption, you are guiding us and leading us to our true homeland and new creation. And so, Lord, we ask that you would equip us for that day, that you would, by your Spirit, enable us to embrace that new reality in Christ, ever shedding our old selves and ever putting on their new selves created in the likeness of God. Make this a reality. May we live in love, uphold the truth in love, work to uphold one another. May this be so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones.